Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, listeners, to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Good. It was a busy week this week. We good got week for games. A good week for many games. Good weeks. Good week for the show. We got nominated for Best Podcast and Board Game Geek Golden Geek Award. So thank you to all our listeners for that. Oh, I thought we were nominated for Best Lightweight Zoomable Game. It could be. I didn't check all the categories. There are quite a few. It might be there. It's true. Of course, the joke there is anyone who's seen me would never nominate me for lightweight anything. Hey! hey oh. So, if you find the time, go ahead and make sure you get back and vote for your best game. I am rooting for David Thompson, who has Undaunted and also By Stealth and Sea nominated. I'm definitely rooting for Cosmic Frog. It's up for a couple of categories, and so I've definitely got some of my favorites that I'm rooting for. Now, speaking of busy, there was a day there that I read nine rule books in one day, Mark. It was kind of brutal. Now, granted, many of them were Oink Games rule books. They were small games, but nine nonetheless. Sure. So let's get into this because let's get going. The game, this is a board gaming podcast. Just in case, welcome to any new listeners that we have today. We talk about some board games. We talk about the game we reviewed exactly one year ago. We're going to talk about the couple dozen games we played this week. And then we're going to talk about our topic, which is tempo. We're also going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll stick that in there somewhere. See, you misjudged the tempo. You were just a little too eager. Oh. You jumped to the end. Damn. Yeah. So our the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus. So, true story. 
True story. I know what you've been saying. <laughs> Walker says to me, you know, Mark, did you check to see what the Aeurus is going to be this week? I'm thinking that maybe what we should do is try to make an effort to replay the Aeurus, to which I responded, well, that's not really the point of the segment. One of the points of the segment is to see if we've been independently moved to revisit it over the course of the year. And then when I looked up what it was, I said, well, I mean, we could play it again if you wanted to. The Aeurus is Edge of Darkness. And then Walker vomited all over my living room floor. It's true. I just finished repolishing it and it just got cleaned up just now edge of darkness was a game we just talked about the designer he did cubitos cubitos and he did mystic veil and other games edge of darkness i don't think is our favorite it was <laughs> walker has discovered diplomacy in his old age uh, we hated edge of dark well hated edge of darkness struck us as an, a huge funeral pyre of missed opportunities and potential that we then set on fire because we never wanted to play it again. It was over long, it was dull, and far too many, uh, far too few decision points, far too many manipulations of various clear plastic cards to be slipped into sleeves. I still think that the card crafting system is a component gimmick in search of a good design. As we lit it on fire and kicked it over the cliff, we laughed the whole way home. Not that we thought it was funny, just that we were so happy we never had to play it again. Oh, I was laughing because of the fumes of the burning mylar left me intoxicated and delirious. So that was Edge of Darkness. We talked about that last year. On to the games we played last week. I finally got to play the Scott Pilgrim Miniatures The World game. This is by Erica Bioris at Renegade Game Studios. It was kickstarted and fulfilled somewhat recently. And I have the deluxe pre-painted version, which is awesome. Got great little miniatures of Scott Pilgrim and the extended cast. And I wasn't expecting much. And I got what I expected. In fact, I was actually a little disappointed. Because, for one thing, the character of the comics... This is more about the comics than the movie. It's worth noting. The Scott Pilgrim comics. And... I didn't get a whole lot of the, the personality of the characters involved. Now, granted, this is perhaps inevitable. I don't know exactly what you could have gotten out of this because Kim Pine and Stephen Stills don't engage in fisticuffs with any of Ramona's evil exes. And so to a certain extent, I, 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 need, to, I need to be careful. I need to exert a certain degree of dif- discipline so I don't engage in long, extended tangents <laughs> about media properties of which I'm very enthusiastic. So... Ultimately, what you have is a two-ish player skirmish game where you roll dice and the dice determine what kind of actions you have available to you. The problem is that none of the actions are particularly exciting. They're all variations of do one damage or do two damage with one pushback or move two and do a damage or this, that, and the other thing. And ultimately then, I, I didn't really feel like I had any interesting turns. This was compounded by the fact that I was playing as the boss. And the game presents itself... I say the boss because the game presents itself very much as kind of a boss situation. This is not designed to be a very competitive experience. And you can tell that. There, there are a couple of tells. One of them is that the boss has fundamentally fewer things to do. The... Good guys, as indicated in the game, this is what they're called, get to deal with items and equip things and do various things. The boss doesn't get to do any of that. And so there's a there's a whole set of mechanisms that the boss just doesn't interact with. Further to which, the good guys tend to be minimum two to a team. And so you can split that up amongst multiple players, or if you're playing two players, then one person gets to deal with twice as many special abilities to manage, and you can strategically decide not to activate a certain character, and then they get a boost token at the end of any round that they don't activate, which lets them do something next round without spending a die or, or any subsequent round. 
So this leads to a number of problems. Either you play two players, in which case that player has those interesting choices and has more fun things to do and gets to interact with more game systems, or you split up those characters amongst multiple people, in which case that potentially interesting choice amounts to, yo, Walker, you don't get to take a turn this turn. Here, take a token instead, which doesn't seem like a good solution either. So it's one of those classic awkward player count games, which is somewhat problematic. And on top of that, returning back to this is clearly a boss-type situation, the game presents itself as having three different difficulty modes, easy, normal, and hard. What they mean is how difficult it's going to be for the good guys. This, to me, is a classic tell that the boss is often not meant to be particularly interesting or not meant to be as uh, not meant to share the spotlight with the good guys in the same way. And so I felt that it was one of those things where not only was there an awkward player account, but the boss is responsible for just, you know, being a boss. Maybe this is the boss I picked. I played Lucas Lee. He was a pretty good skater. Now he's a pretty good actor. He's going for the Oscar this year. But maybe other bosses would be more interesting. It was very visually nice. It was cute. It was quick. It was somewhat, it was reasonably accessible, uh, but it wasn't super engaging as a slugfest skirmishy type of thing. And I don't think it really sold the theme aside from the visuals. And so ultimately I was left somewhat disappointed. Despite my high hopes, it was designed by a Canadian, someone who lives in Toronto. As a love letter to Toronto, it didn't really come through either. I mean, yeah, you can, you, you, It was somewhat unreasonable to expect to be able to have a fight in Sneaky D's, but... Surprisingly, they didn't get some sort of co-op system for the boss, as opposed to having just... You know, since it's just basic actions anyway, maybe they should have had to just run... AI run it somehow, and then have two players anyway. That potentially would have been more promising. And so ultimately, uh, I don't know that I'll be going back to Scott Pilgrim Miniatures the World. I'm a huge fan of the property, but unfortunately the game just let me down. And so that was Scott Pilgrim Miniatures the World. You and I got to play Red Rising Munchkin. It was designed by <laughs> Alexander Schmidt and Jamie Stegmeier. It's put out by Stonemeyer Ga- Games. And this is another IP property. So I suppose if you read the books, you might get a lot more out of this than, than I did. Uh, I suspect most people would get more out of this than you did. So it's a game where it really plays with your hand size. I believe it is it six or five. Five is the standard hand size, and there's some special abilities that might give you one or two more, but then it's a game where you're trying to build your hand over the entire game. So if you start the game with three cards that already combo with each other, now you have a hand size of two for the entire game. I I don't see how that would change. Maybe I just got lucky on my first hand, and maybe you normally you know take the whole game to build your hand up. I am not sure. I looked at all the cards that were on the display and all the cards in my hand, and it was pretty well, you know, majority of the points that I got at the end of the game anyway, right off the beginning. And then I got cards that were played on me that reduced that hand size of two even further. Yeah. I I think you're right to start with talking about the hand size because I reduced your hand size by a couple and I increased my hand size by a couple by virtue of the cards that I top decked. Because the way Red Rising works is you play a card wherever you want to on one of four different locations. And then you pull a card to replace it, either from one of the locations, in which case you get a bonus associated with that location. Or you top deck and roll a die. Four results of the die are the bonuses of those four locations. And I didn't like any of the cards in the display at the start of the game. And so I spent a substantial portion of the, of, of the game top decking. And I stumbled into a number of cards, which quite frankly, I did not see the appeal of in terms of a, of a game design. I twice encountered a card that says, play this card. An opponent has to discard a card. 
And unless you play this card in very certain circumstances, this card trashes itself. In other words, I get to hit Walker in the face, and the game that I, the, the card that I use to hit Walker in the face, which might theoretically, under normal circumstances, have entered the system, disincentivizing me from spiting someone and or giving my victim the means by which they could defend themselves, it leaves the game. And I got this because I top decked. And the fact that you can top deck is frequently invoked by some of the fans of Red Rising. Some people say, well, look, I've got this hand and, and none of the cards seem very appealing. What am I supposed to do? They're like, oh, you're supposed to top deck. So you, you, you have this hand of cards, you play a card, you do what it says it does, and then you top deck for, for, for much of the game, apparently. Now, again, we've only played once. But I, I didn't hate the game quite as much as you did because trying to kit out, it, it's a bit like a tableau builder, except your tableau is hidden where you're trying to get these scoring combinations and fish for the right kind of cards to, to, to score things. The bulk of your, of your points from our, both of our scores came from these cards after all. And that part was theoretically cool. I'm told that this is very, very, very much derivative of a game called Fantasy Realms, which neither of us have played, and which Stegmeier openly acknowledges in the rulebook as having been an inspiration for how the, the game works. It was very pretty. I thought the components were great. Classic Stonemeyer production. We had the collector's edition. Yeah, and I'm sure if you played it a lot, then you'll get to know which cards you need and, and which cards will combo off each other. But I, I just don't see the appeal of of just fishing for these cards throughout the whole game. And, and it's all you do. Every turn, you play a card and pick up a card and play a card. You know what I mean? That's, that's the game. Yeah. Like you said, we've played it once. <laughs> I will play it again and see if we can pull something else out of it, but... It, it's a massive deck of unique cards, and I quite like the artwork. It's not going to inspire me to go read the book, I don't think, necessarily. Yeah, that's what I mean. But... There's like there is, uh, there's another game I'm going to talk about that has, you know, an overabundance of resources, but this one has, I don't know, what was it, like eight different colors that all trigger off each other in different ways? Yes. Yikes. It reminded me of what a really substandard variation on Innovation might be. Innovation is also a game which is basically just a stack, a huge stack of unique effects. The difference in Innovation being, number one, they're graduated, and so the game escalates. And number two, it's a tableau builder. And you have this sense of investment, and you have the sense of being able to key off of icons and other things you've done previously, as opposed to these endless march of one-shots and punitive cards that trash each other and cards that gave me an extra hand size for the rest of the game that also trashed each other and nope there was the only interesting part at all were the cards that stayed in the system and keyed off of a various effect there was one card that said if you play this in the right circumstance move up this track further and this card if it's in your hand at the end of the game gives you uh, uh, gives you extra points if you're at the top of the track that part was potentially cool. We, would, uh, we were competing on that track, and who would have the card at the end of the game, maybe, so there was that threat. That part was potentially interesting. That did not represent a majority of the cards that we experienced, and so ultimately I, I felt that there was just a whole bunch of random noise. Agreed. And that was Red Rising. That was Red Rising. So we played two of the Oink games that we got. One was In a Grove, and the other one was Moon Adventure. It was about a murder. Apparently this town has a lot of murders and too many detectives. What we can do is we can retheme it to take place in Micro Macro Crime City and imagine that there's like 10 people, well, not in COVID times, but under other circumstances, 10 people crowded around the table all trying to look at where the map is, but they keep bumping heads against each other. That That's a good retheme. I like it. So it's, it's sort of, uh, you get 
a little bit of information and the other players get a little bit of different information. And from that, you're supposed to deduce who the murderer is by the fact that they're going to be the largest number. And sometimes it could be the smallest number. So you could, there's, there's potentially with more players, we only play a two player, but potentially with more players, it could be a little bit of bluffing, a little bit of sleight of hand, but, uh, it's. I'm looking forward to playing it with more players. Me too. I don't think two is with its best. It's designed by Jun Sasaki, who's done a whole bunch of different white games. And definitely characteristic of Jun Sasaki and a couple of other Japanese designers. It's, a lot of it is about bluffing. And we only had a couple of instances of bluffing in this time. One of them, I, I shamelessly play acted. And I knew for certain who the who the murderer was. But I kind of hemmed and hawed for a minute, trying to imply that I didn't know for certain what was going on. It's about making either a guess based on incomplete information and or you know, on occasion playing the rest of the players and trying to make inferences based on what they've done or try to convince them to make bad decisions. I will say that Oink Games has really stepped up its component game. Oink Games were never deficient. They've come these tiny little adorable boxes with a very minimalistic but very stark graphic design. And I've always liked how they look. Yeah, very unique. But it, where they used to have only tokens, now they've got these chunky plastic pieces all over the place. And I haven't played the original version of In a Grove, but I've seen pictures of it. And the new the new edition, it's, it's about 10 years old now, is very... Very, it's got these plastic cadavers that you, you lay out and these bizarre mustache tokens. Apparently, this is not a trope with which I'm familiar. Apparently, detectives uh, all have mustaches. And it's going to feed in. I'm going to put it up on the guild. It's going to be, what is the most funny or your favorite token name? Now it's inept tokens. Yes. In, in, in a grove, you get, you get inept tokens. I not ineptitude it. tokens. No. These are tokens that are bad at their job. That's <laughs> and you have them in front of you. Yeah, I have no idea what they're, what they're meant to represent graphically. But I do like that they're inept tokens. Yeah, it was cute. I often find a lot of this aesthetic of design, namely you don't have nearly enough information and you either have to bluff or make these leaps of logic to be frustrating and unsatisfying. And this, again, is very characteristic of a number of very lightweight Japanese designs. But I have to say that In a Grove was probably my favorite iteration of that kind of style of thing. And I would very much like to try it with more players when and if we're allowed the pleasures of human social contact again. So the second one, Moon Adventure, was also designed by Jun Sasaki. And this is, I was trying to compare this to uh, a pandemic, but it went just too far off the rails because this is a cooperative game where you have a certain number of action points and you're trying to collect these pieces of the ship, but you don't get to know if they're useful pieces of the ship. They could be broken. They could not be broken. And you sort of have to fill up your inventory, but not too much because you have to have some oxygen in there. And then everyone has to get back to the ship. And then you sort of flip up all your ship tokens and, and hope you have the enough to win the scenario. I believe a, a very intelligent, physically attractive and virile individual commented that it is not uncommon in a certain kind of Japanese game design aesthetic to encourage people to make decisions with imperfect information and then have to make sort of inductive leaps of logic or risks or, or sometimes bluffing. I wonder who said that. I don't know. Sounds like a swell guy. Anyway, the end game conditions of Mood Adventure are one of the things that I really don't like about it. There is no way, none, to determine whether or not you have the parts that are necessary. You can make certain bets about the relative quality of certain sets of equipment, but there's no way to be certain unless you accumulate 
uh, an illegal quantity of, of components in most instances. And it has one of the things that I really don't like in games, namely that the early turns are more open and interesting than the later turns. And furthermore, you might find about halfway through the game or two-thirds of the way through the game that you're already boned because of decisions you'd made previously. These are not things that I admire in a design, even when it's relatively quick. Moon Adventure was around 45 minutes or so, and very simple. And again, uh, Oink Games has really been stepping up their components. Really good, chunky tokens, a lot of wood going on. Very, very, very attractive, and I liked all the, the, the graphical elements. But in the, the, the start of the game, the map is wide open. You have a lot of storage room, and so you can play around with maybe getting some equipment and maybe getting some more oxygen, because that's how you stay alive. If anyone asphyxiates, you lose. It has this really cool movement system where you sort of, like, bog the... Not, I don't want to say bog the track down, because that sounds bad, but you can leap over spaces. So if there's a person there or or uh, supplies that you purposely put in the spaces, it lets you move much further. I had a robot that also took up space, so it, it lets you leap out to the better spaces faster and i really thought that was interesting as well yeah that part was neat and again having to set up those routes having to calculate out how to push to the extreme edges where the theoretically better equipment tokens were found as i said the early parts of the game i'm vastly preferred but the end game rolls around and people are loaded up with equipment because you want to take as much equipment as possible and what that does is it leaves you more at the mercy of dice because you generate action points based on on chucking d3s so a funny actual story took us a couple turns because because they were they were traditional wooden dice. It's true. So when you see traditional wooden dice, you just assume that they're normal dice. We're not smart people. We're in, we, so like, like <laughs> so it took us a couple turns to realize that they were D three. It took us a couple rounds to realize they were D threes. We were like, we are just rolling really badly, and then it's like, oh wait a minute, these are D threes. This is why we only have so little action points but anyway that was <laughs> and that was moon adventure by oink games designed by june sasaki played another game of cosmic frog by jim philly of devious weasel games played on tabletop simulator it's sad most of my games of cosmic frog have been on tabletop simulator which is a shame it's a beautiful game and the physical direction is wonderful with with lovely chunky tokens i still haven't played with the with some of the the the, the variant alternate rules there are tons of variants in the box but fortunately as i always ask there's editorial direction and this is you know it presents very clearly this is the default way to play so it's not like play whatever way you want in a, a million different ways some of the variants just strike me as Increasing the, the the randomness, perhaps turning it, the score the end game scoring into very much like the game of Moon Adventure. You flip over the tiles, like oh look, I got the Bonanza tile. But anyhow, fun was had by all. It started out aggressive, it remained aggressive. The winner was the one who was able to best manage their aggression with defense and not be position themselves as they weren't really able to be attackable easily. And as a result, it was the targets of opportunity that got stomped on, which is which is great. Lots of different powers entered the system, which is another one of those brilliant elements of Cosmic Frog that's great. Had a blast. Love Cosmic Frog. Looking forward to my next play. So Dewey picked up a Kickstarter game that was buckets of plastic called Galaxy Hunters. You play these giant mecha owned by the corporations who took over the universe and started dabbling in in DNA modification and accidentally made all these mutants that are now across the different planets and now you have to go out and hunt them down you know to save the corporations because they want to harvest the dna <laughs> you know one or the other who knows so unfortunately, i for one welcome our corporate overlords 
Unfortunately, Mark didn't get to play this. I don't want to say too much because I want him to give it a try so we can both talk about it. But I have a feeling that I, I'm going to be comparing it to uh, After the Empire. It's one of these games where you blow all your resources, you know, taking out a bunch of mutants, and then you spend a turn or all your actions on this basic worker placement board, getting all these cubes back. I counted them up the other day. There's 21 different resources to track. Wow. Between the ammunition and the energy and the armor on your robot and all the different resources that you have to... That does sound cooler than wooden stone, though. Then, true. <laughs> then, and then all the different metals and, and that. Anyway, so you have this giant chart of, of stuff... You have to track and then all the cubes. Anyway, 20 different resources. I don't want to say resources. or just 20 different things to track. And that was Galaxy Hunters. You get to be giant mechs. I know. And my favorite design visually happened to be the one called Prometheus, who is one of my favorite mythological figures. Clearly, it's fate. It's got another cool... So you've got to be wrong. It's got to be good. It's got to be good. It's got to be much better than after the other games will be good. There's, it's, you pick a pilot and you pick a robot. Every pilot has four unique abilities. I would like to pick Gamlin Kazaki, and I would like to pick the VF-22S. <laughs> no. Are those options? They are not. And oh, then, no. And then when you combine it with a robot, it has two check marks on the robot, so those are the only two abilities that that pilot will have for this game. And each robot has different check marks, so you can line them up however you want. There are some cards that will give you a third, and then you spend the time you know, upgrading your weapons and doing all sorts of... So that part is interesting, but we'll see. That is Galaxy <laughs> Hunters, designed by Daniel Alves and put out by IDW Games. So from the other extreme of a bucket of plastic and 20 different resources, we played more games of Regicide, a game that consists exclusively of a standard deck of cards and very, very cool artwork. This Again, under the general category of Mark is not a very observant human being, I noticed for the first time that there is visual continuity between the suits. All the different suits have different special powers. And there's a certain visual aesthetic that combines them. But there's also visual continuity against the numbers. So all the eights are really cool bipedal lizard dragon people. And that was really neat. So I was I was already admiring the art, but I was admiring them individually. And then I said, wait a minute. <laughs> These all line up. These all kind of line up in a really cool way. The more I play, the more I appreciate Regicide. I started out really liking it. Uh, well, I started out playing it solo and figuring this is awfully fragile. But then the moment you start playing it with multiple people, it's really hard. But it's the kind of hard where after the dust settles, you're like, yep, that's when I blew it. That card play right there, that was pivotal. I, I knew why I did it at the time. This wasn't careless or thoughtless, but I, I made a miscalculation and I ought to have played a different card. And it's all about managing the timing. This isn't about tempo. This is about timing. You need to make sure that you line up the special abilities to go with the right way because each of the four special abilities of the suits is crucial. And you wish every turn you could, pay a, you could play a Spade Club Heart Diamond because you need all of them at all times. And that tension and that difficulty is really, really, really satisfying. And I really, I, it's a super impressive design. I'm really yeah. impressed with it. Yeah, you I haven't got. made it through yet, have you? Through the No, the end? closest we ever got was we got down to two... No, the closest I ever got was getting down to one king. Which is great, because there's not really... I suppose you can, like, uh, ramp up the hit points or whatever, but there's not any way to make it difficult, so I'm glad that it's hard right off the hop. Yes. I need to look on the forums and see how other people are doing, but I'm really glad that it's nice and hard and that we keep getting beat down. And that is Regicide. Regicide is a review copy we got from the designer. 
We played two very interesting, I guess, family games or party games. It was Lama Dice and Abandon All Artichokes. So Lama Dice is by Reiner Knizia. I was a little worried at first, but then, <laughs> man, oh man. It's, yeah. I should, why didn't I have faith, Mark? I should have just had faith. Okay, well, the reason why I didn't have faith was because Llama, the card game upon which this is nominally based... It took me a couple plays to see what was there, but even once you see what's there, there's not a whole lot there there. And so I was a little bit concerned about Llama Dice. So Llama Dice is a little bit hard to explain, just verbally. There's There's cards and dice. There's cards and dice. It's a push your luck. You're hoping that everyone else stays in with you, because if everyone passes, then the penalty for you is very bad. That's all I can say. Over the course of a (laughs) single play, we we enjoyed it right from the start. Because even at the level of trying to figure out how to manage getting rid of your card, it's one of those games very much like Llama where cards are bad. Points are bad and, and cards give you points. And so we were trying to manage getting rid of all these things. And, and, and it was one of those games where even though it was very quick and very light, as rounds went on, we were like, wait a minute. <laughs> what I thought I needed to do a couple rounds ago is not how I really should be playing. I should be playing this other way. Wait a minute, but that only works if other people let me. And suddenly these people are pushing the game speed in a way that's unpleasant to me. Oh my goodness, he's going to go for it. Oh no, he's out! <laughs> and it was just rollicking fun. There you are encouraging your friends to make bad decisions in the classic tradition of Push Your Luck uh, games. It's visually all over the place. It's as Dayglow as the Top Gun strategy game. And with like llamas wearing sunglasses. So it's like a weird PSA from the 90s about yep. like some anthropomorphic llama telling children not to do drugs. It's a, a lot, or, or to skate, stay in school. I don't know. I didn't pay attention to either of those. That's why I spent all my years in grad school not drinking. But it's, it was really fun. I really yeah. enjoyed llama. It, not a lot there. Nope. It will be super easy to teach. Super easy to teach. Really accessible. Very, very pleasant. But but surprising little bits of texture here and there about how to play it well. Yeah, from this first-time designer, Mr. Knizia. And then Abandon All Our Chokes. This is designed by Emma Larkins and published by GameRight. Um, not much I can say about Abandon All Our Chokes. <laughs> it, it does what it does. You know, you have a you hand you have ten artichoke cards, and you draw five from the top of that, and now you have a hand of artichokes. You're going to draw one card from a pool of other vegetables, and they're going to help you get rid of your artichokes. And then at the end of your turn, you discard all your cards and draw your five cards. And if none of them are artichokes, you win. It is a deck destruction game. So it has a lot of the conventions of deck building, but the goal of the game is to get rid of a lot of your cards. So it does a couple things that I really like. One of them is it dispenses with big money as a strategy. I, I don't object to that necessarily, but when that's one of the only things going on in, in a deck builder or one of the one of the avenues that a deck builder can pursue, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit over that. So I, I like how Xenoshift gets rid of that strategy. I like how it gets rid of the strategy too. You don't buy cards, you just draft one straight off. I like how it internalizes how trashing is one of the more interesting elements of deck building anyway, and that's the entire bit of the game. There have been other deck destruction deck builders before, but this is actually the first one I've played, so I can't really compare them to other ones. So I kind of like how to internalize both of those elements together. Yeah, I just wish it was a little bit more wacky and a little more... Yes. You know, because it's very light and it it seemed very dry. The card effects... The cards are adorable, but the card effects are all very dull. Like... 
the potato is reveal the top card of your deck. If it's an artichoke, trash it. Otherwise, discard it. You know, and most of the cards are roughly of that level of effect. And so you're you're you especially hope in the early games to get one of the cards that trashes rather than one of the cards that is a utility card. For example, one of the other cards is broccoli, or Brock Ally for fans of RuPaul's Drag Race. And when you play the Brock Ally, if you have three or more artichoke cards in your hand, you trash an artichoke. And so obviously at the beginning of the game, when all you've got is artichokes, that's one of the best cards you could hope to have. And it's going to springboard you to rapid success. Then there are other cards which are, again, not really interesting, but a little bit more procedural. It's like uh, swap a random card in your hand with somebody else's random card. You don't want that at the start of the game. Why would you want to swap your artichoke with someone else's artichoke? That's just not as good. And so the opening flop can be very determinative as to the effect. But... As far as gateway deck building games go, you could do a lot worse. I, I'd, I'd rather play this than, than Dominion. Not that I hate Dominion. It's just that it's a little played out for my tastes. Yeah, and, again, and, and the setup. This is easily set up. Yes. Everyone gets 10 artichokes. You put out a, a, flop, a flop of five cards, and you're on your way. Yeah, and I think uh, this, very much like Llama Dice, you could play with children. If their reading comprehension is good enough. Yep then you could absolutely do it. I've seen some complaints about the end game. I think the end game is actually really good because deck builders already, the at least the version of pure deck builders where you're always drawing a new card of, of end, uh, new hand of end cards, they tend to spiral out of control based on luck of the draw anyway. And so the fact that Abandoned All Artichoke seems to implicitly recognize that. Okay, the moment you draw a really awesome hand, the game ends for everybody. <laughs> I kind of appreciate that. Yeah. And that is Abandon All Artichokes. So we played a game of The Magnificent. The Magnificent is a dice drafting game by Ilif Svensson and Christian Amundsen Usby and a port of games. We were streaming it and I was shamefully saying, oh, I'm not really familiar if they've done anything else. Yeah, these are these two are a long-time design collaboration. They've been publishing lots and lots of Euro games, many of them through the Norwegian Aporta Games for a long time. I just don't have a whole lot of experience with them, so I'll admit my ignorance there. I compared The Magnificent to Pulsar 2849, and that comparison still holds true. I'd also like to compare it a little bit to The Princes of Florence, uh, the venerable Euro game, which was everyone does an auction and then everyone tries to do a couple of actions. Many of them rely on hosting great works of art, which rely on you meeting a whole bunch of prerequisites, some of them involving buildings. Similarly, The Magnificent, you try to put on performances which have prerequisites, most of them involving buildings. And I still really enjoy The Magnificent. One of the things that I like about it is how focused the action selection is. There's a very limited menu of actions, but I don't feel constrained by it. I feel that it just highlights what I need to do. And I really like how, like Beyond the Sun, you constantly are getting stuff, but it doesn't feel like busy work. You know, you you move, you do a, a travel action to go get something, but in the process, you get some gems on the side, which can help you boost an action. You build a building because you need the building, but in placing the building, you need to cover some bonus spots and get some resources on the side. You do a performance mostly because you want points, but it gives you some money on the side. And I really help. The, uh, I, I really like how you can't do whatever you want whenever you want. Money is tight, tighter for some people than others, but nonetheless, you're never you never feel like you're starving. And although you get lots of different resources involved, it's never just okay. Well, two in three out, two over there, one over here. And that balance is, you know, very personal, obviously, in case of Euro games, but I really do like how the Magnificent is just the right level of fluidity and scarcity for my tastes. And yeah. so, I, like I enjoyed how, that part. I like how it was a build-up, too. You know, you really want to get that three performance thing off at the end, so you're sort of making sure you at least get one or two off every turn, but knowing that that final push, you want to get 
a really big one at the end. And you talked last week about it, the fact that the travel action, you know, really didn't pan out. And I don't think it really panned out in a multiplayer game either. It was sort of a, a side thing. And I feel it takes a sideshow, even a sideshow. Yes, and it really takes up too much of the board, right? It's this giant, three giant wheels. I think it's, it takes up much more space than it really needed to. Well, it's a shame you didn't like how how much of it, uh, how central it was to the game, because I can assure you there was a lot more traveling going on in the multiplayer game than there was solo. Oh, okay. but there still was no whole heck of a lot. Still wasn't a lot. <laughs> it is still essential, like you said. You need gems, and there's uh, other tokens that what do they call the, the round things? Called the tents. The tents. There's tents that you needed as well. But it was more like a side thing. It's like, okay, well, I have an extra worker. I guess I'll, you know, travel and get that over with type thing, you know, bump up my gems and and do that sort of thing. I liked what it did with colors, how everything, you know, was related to the dice and how the your special abilities need to be certain dice or, you know, you had to sort of – and the fact that you had to pay for your workers, but it was also based on the color. So and how it worked out, you know, the majority and, the, and you had to pay for the wild dice as well. I liked how all that worked. I'm glad. The one thing that I don't like about the Magnificent, and honestly, it's it this this is one area where I think it suffers a little bit in comparison to Pulsar twenty eight forty nine. Uh, I didn't feel that the dice drafting was very tight. I usually felt that whatever I needed to draft was there. I never felt like oh, I really need to get that die before somebody else snatches it. One of the reasons why is because again, you have these gems that modify the dice, and you get a fair number of them. Then there are a whole bunch of cards that modify how how much the dice are, and this is great. You know, normally in a dice drafting game, you want powers that can modify the value of the die. It's just that I felt that the scarcity of the dice and the scarcity of other resources was miscalibrated in my preferences. I remember when playing Pulsar, or indeed when I'm playing other dice drafting games, I really care about snatching up some of those dice first. Yeah, you could almost sort of uh, wonk out the timing where you build up for your performances and then end your turn. And then when the next round begins, you have all the high dice there to do your performances because that's when you need the high dice. Because you said you didn't see the scarcity, but I saw it near the end when everyone was trying to do the performances because you want high because okay. you have to go up the table, right? It's true. So everyone was grabbing them. But like I said, you could almost, you know, wonk out the system and just skip. Oh, I did notice that. Yeah. Instead skip of the early one. Instead of doing all your big performances at the end of the round, do it at the start of the next round when, that's when right. you're not competing for it. Uh, that did occur to me. But again, as I was calculating how to maximize my score, I couldn't help but notice that between the cards, maybe it was just because we had different cards, between the cards that I had and the dice that were available, there was always a high enough die available for me when I needed to go perform. So maybe that was a turn order order thing as well. I thought it was really good. A number of people commented, and normally I don't like to, to, to parrot other people's views, not my own, that they felt that it was a little too complicated for what it was, which is really weird because I think that one of the things that I like about the Magnificent is it feels very streamlined to me. Yeah, no. Once you, when I think once you started, once the explanation was done, I don't think there was much many questions at all. And so, if you wanted to check it out, it is up on YouTube now, and we're going to be streaming again next Saturday, ten thirty a.m. Eastern. We'll be doing Blood Rage. It's another new design by a first-time designer, Eric Lang, and that was the magnificent. When it comes to Blood Rage, we have certain cast iron rules as far as I'm concerned. Fenrir mandatory, pants optional. It's a good policy. Next up, we got to play a fantastic two-player game, Claustrophobia 1643. You know, some people think that Claustrophobia peaked around 1270 or so. I am glad that they went through the next 400-some iterations because I really think that the 1,643rd one, that's the one where they struck. Well, I was going to say, it takes that many, when it has that much refining, it cannot be amazing. This is designed by Croc and... Laurent Pouchin. Oh, yeah, there we go. And it is published by Monolith. So... 
We talk a lot about wanting a two-player skirmish game that's balanced. This has it in spades. Not only do the boat two sides play completely differently, but they're both very interesting. And uh, just the fact that every game is different because you're pulling up map tiles that will change how the game works and how the not only that the fact that the tiles have special abilities, but the layout really affects how you know, where the bad guy can put uh, enemies and stuff like that. So that's going to change it up as well. Uh, sometimes it can lead to swingy dice in the last turn. But- yes. Let us <laughs> let us speak of, of Walker's suffering. Well, you say swingy dice in the last turn. You were, you just had rotten luck the entire time. One of the, I, I talked about this in the context of probability. Claustrophobia has you rolling enough dice that in theory, and indeed most of the time, things are going to even out. It's not like Warhammer Underworlds where it's a small number of high-impact rolls. Here you have a large number of low-impact rolls. And we go into the final boss room. This is after Walker has just been, you know, missing, rolling, you know, he needs threes to hit, he rolls a bunch of twos. He needs fours to hit, he rolls a bunch of twos. He just was rolling a bunch of twos, suffice to say. And I show up, and there is a 1 in 16 chance of my Redeemer character hitting with all his dice. He hits with all his dice, leaving the boss with one hit point left. And at that point, Walker already started tearing the tearing the game down because I had other people to activate. And it was a shame because you know your redeemer gets got three hits, which did six of the ten wounds. So he still had four left. Then your heavy swung. Oh, you're right. And got four hits. So yes, it was much worse than what you just said. Sorry, you're quite right. It is much worse than I said. <laughs> but the redeemer hitting with all his dice is still a one in sixteen shot. I forgot that that then set up for yeah. It was it was a bad scene in terms of the dice, but it is a testament to how good claustrophobia sixteen forty three is. That it's it's hard to have too hard feelings about it because it's reasonably quick and you have lots of tense decisions on the way. To me, it's not the sort of final answer to skirmish games. It doesn't feel like a skirmish game to me. To me, it is the definitive dungeon crawler in a competitive space. I think the competitive dungeon crawling has gone very much out of vogue for good reason, because the traditional mode of dungeon crawler is the one v all three hours of inconsequential combats leading to weird, incredibly clumsy, cumbersome rules and square counting and all those things. Claustrophobia dispenses with all of that. Just two players, scenario-driven, tight, visceral, quick, bloody, dangerous... And if you want to do a more traditional style of dungeon crawl thing, make it cooperative, which is the the general movement that the market has made. So when I think of, of claustrophobia, to my mind, it's the last word in competitive dungeon crawling. So under, that's claustrophobia 1943. <laughs> no, that's the world Six, word. That, 1643. Well, that's the obvious variation, right? You all, like every, every zombie game has to have a Nazi version. So obviously the Nazi version would be claustrophobia 1943, but. So onto a dice where, onto a game where I didn't have to roll dice. <laughs> Merv, Heart of the Silk, Silk Road. This is by Fabio Lupiano and the artist is Ian O'Toole. And this is put out by Offspray Games. And this is a game that has all sorts of things going on. You're moving a meeple down, taking a, a, a choice of four different actions that has sub-actions that go on to eight different tracks that you can go up. So tons of <laughs> tracks, now just as what, we well know. Just three tracks, Walker. Well, three actual number tracks. But then the the silk, the, the trading that's a track, and the and the mosque <sighs> is a track. I was counting. The, I was counting the mosque. Were you counting the mosque as well. Mosque influence and favor. Those to me are the three tracks. All right. <laughs> the 
they're actual tracks. The other ones are potential tracks. Let's call them track adjacent. So I had lots of fun playing uh, Merv. It didn't play quite the way I thought it would. It didn't play quite the way I've I've seen it played uh, online. Oh. It's a lot centered around uh, our playing group. This is what I love about playing in different groups and the fact that how these games play differently in other groups. In our group, when they play a war game, they must have all of the plastic figures on the board all at once to make sure when they attack... They're never defenseless afterwards, and this played out much the same, i.e. the walls of Merv were built by the second round, (laughs) and nothing was in danger, whereas the games I watched online, people didn't much care whether their buildings got destroyed or anything, because there wasn't much loss, because you just put them out again afterwards. So it played out much differently, I thought, but I still really enjoyed it. Mark, what did you think? I liked it. I didn't love it. So Fabio Lopiano is the same designer uh, as Kalamala, which is one of our preferred Euros of the past few years, and Ragusa, which I found very disappointing. I would definitely put Merv between Ragusa and Kalamala. It The action selection was reasonably pedestrian. The building and everything was was kind of cool. The, research, uh, the resource management was all right. Uh, nothing about it really struck me as stunning. The one part that I liked, though was the influence track. And that's one of the reasons why I was building so many walls. Because you, when you build walls, you you run up the influence track. And I, I liked it because it was the one track that didn't feel like tracks on tracks on tracks. Not that Murr felt like that to me. Because it touched on other things. There were a whole bunch of sub... You call them mini-games. I don't know if I'd go that far. You can buy spices. You can fulfill contracts. You can build the walls. You can go up this favorite track. You can have you can go up the mosque, etc., etc., but the influence track was the only one that really regulated other things. It determined how many different kinds of spices you could have, and it could also regulate what kind of contracts you, you could fulfill. And I kind of stumbled in the idea of fulfilling a whole bunch of contracts, so I had to go up the influence track to do that. You were pushing for spices a lot, but that's why you had to go up the influence track. And so that was one of those rare in- instances where th- there wasn't direct player interaction, but we were both going up the same track for different reasons, and that indicates a level of cohesion that the rest of the game didn't show. True, but there, there is interaction there, because you get to go up the track further if you protect other people's stuff. So yes. I really like that part of it. If you built walls that help protect other people, you went up that track further, and I thought that was very, very cool. Yes, Ultimately, I felt that it was generally just a, a, a pretty relatively standard and relatively serviceable but uninspired collection of Euro stuff. I'd happily play again. I didn't find it super compelling. Uh, but then again, I didn't find it. It didn't turn me off. Except, you mentioned the artist when introducing things. Eno Tool is now a relatively well-known board game artist. And I really think that this represents Eno Tool at its best and at its worst. Because sometimes I've seen an Eno Tool game and people rave about Eno Tool's art. I'm like, okay, this is art. It's fine. It doesn't really grab me, but it, it, it works. I felt that the board for Ragusa and all the components were beautiful. I really, really think it's very visually striking. I love the way color is used. I love the way the components are minimalist when they have to be, but very, very bright and bold when they need to be. But by the same token, I think Eno Tool and I just parse icons differently because a lot of the iconography in Merv, Heart of the Silk Road, did not assist me in recalling the rules or teaching the rules. In particular, the thing at the top of the, of the contract cards, which basically amounts to spend a cube of any color to get this contract card, I had a great deal of difficulty understanding what the icon meant, and it actually was such that it confused me, and I was trying to reconcile what I was seeing on the card with what the rulebook was telling me was the case, and that is not a good sign. Yeah, and whether you had to use that to payment or it was part of the contract that you had to pay or, yeah. 
And that was Merv, Heart of the Silk Road. I got to play a quick little game that had a little bit of buzz. It's called Railroad Inc. It is a roll and write. It's in the sort of same vein where these tile games like Calico or whatever, when you have a, a display and you're forced to take things and you sort of have to like junk them like when you're forced to take a towel you don't want, you sort of like junk it over in the corner. Like an artichoke. Like an artichoke. So you roll the dice and you have to use all of them. There's going to be a mixture of roads and rails and different turns and junctions. And you have to place them on your sheet. And you're going to get points if you use all the entrances. And you're going to get extra points if uh, you get a lot of tracks and roads in the middle of the board. And if they all sort of connect. I found it, you know... As Roland Wrights go, not terrible. <laughs> High praise. And uh, there's uh, a blue box and a red box. You can With the blue box, you can add a couple of dice that adds, like, lakes. So you can add this cool little lake feature. And we didn't, I didn't get to play with the... These are both on... Excuse me. These are both on uh, Board Game Arena. So, and the red box, uh, apparently there's the volcanoes, if I remember right. And you do something with volcanoes. I'm not sure yet. I'll try that out. That sounds much more exciting. I find, I'll find it, that out next week. So I'll, I'll, I'll report soon <laughs> on Railroad Inc. Deep uh, Dark Red, Deep Red, Fancy Red Edition. I'm not sure what they call it. Railroad, la- Railroad Inc. Caliente. And lastly, for both of us, we got to play a review copy sent to us by Blam Games. I said Blam. I said Blam. And it's uh, called Denia. This is uh, put out, This sorry, this is designed by Thomas DuPont. So this is, you get to control these six robots. It's yet another dice drafting game, much like the Magnificent. So you draft the die, and it's going to engage that robot that's on this sort of Spirum grid. And Spirum is when you have all the, uh, it's got all of these different cards, and you're putting stuff in the seams. So when the robot uh, activates, it's going to uh, activate the two cards beside it. And that could be anything from helping build a building that you're building there or engaging the building and getting your resources. And then you get to do uh, an action, like sort of recycling that die when you're done, and that gives you even more stuff. And then there's like a sort of side thing where you're getting artifacts. You're like slotting these microchips, and there's a bunch of special abilities. I think overall it played as a very interesting like sort of gateway intro Euro I don't know if I'd go so far as gateway. It's definitely on the lighter end. I don't know that I would put it in the same level as some of your your more classic entryway stuff because there are a number of timing issues that are not necessarily complicated, but definitely it's a function of, well, you need to trigger a whole bunch of combos, and there are these things that are not part of your normal turn structure, and there are a number of different ways you can go about getting points. I enjoyed it. I thought the theme was bizarre. It's got this kind of science fantasy kind of... There were these robots, and now they're kind of vaguely insectoid kind of deal and mystical something or other. Anyway, didn't do a whole lot for me there. And it's definitely got a sense of of focused scope. The game doesn't last very long, and you're very much encouraged to hit the ground running and get your buildings up. And if you have an engine, you're not going to be pumping it for very long, and you don't even need to get an engine. Alternatively, you could just focus your way from in-game scoring. That was the one part that I didn't really like, actually, and it's a good thing that I didn't engage with it much. There's this bizarre kind of spatial component of how to lay out your buildings on a, on this grid where you have building slots. Once you've started a building, it can't be moved, and you might find yourself in a position where, by virtue of what's available on the display, that building is not going to be able to 
to combo off of or get synergy bonus points at the end of the game based on anything that's on the display. And there were no ways in at least the setup that we had to pull deeper. And it was about halfway through the game when I looked at what was already under construction on my board. And I looked at what was available to draft. And I realized there was nothing that I could do. There was nothing that I wanted. So I'm like, okay, I'll just pump this engine that I built. Turned out to be fine. And that was okay because the game wasn't gonna, it wasn't as long as I expected it to be. And it was perfectly reasonable to stop building about half halfway through the game. And that was okay. But I, that was just one aspect that didn't really grab me. The fact that it didn't have to grab me, that I could go off and do my own thing, is 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 to the game's credit. But yeah, that's what I have here: the fact that there's different paths to victory. The fact that you and I did two totally different things and still came out slightly even, I thought was really. Yeah, and those are the two things. You can either build buildings or you can exploit the buildings you have. Hopefully, those buildings being ones that let you collect what these things are called these things called artifacts. I kind of liked how you had this idea of activating robots and then trying to situate the robots where you wanted them to be. And there was a little bit more time pressure on drafting the dice than compared to, say, something like Magnificent. You look at the available dice and you figure, well, I really need to use one of those threes, but there's only a single three available, so I'd better do it now because otherwise it might be gone. And, you know, that little additional bit of pressure I do appreciate. And like you said, there's a three-by-three grid, nine different buildings, and you sort of have to plan it out like transition like the you want to get some light buildings at the beginning and then start transitioning to you know victory point buildings and sort of have this balance because you're you know quickly going to run out of room and we did have some issues right there's a little bit of printing issues on the artifacts and there was a little bit of like color i don't want to say color variation because that might lead to think that the color was wrong but the fact that it was a red building but it let you know green and yellow buildings score and it, sometimes you know you it was kind quite, of a spatial puzzle and again that part i just didn't have any patience for. But that's just a preference thing. True. So the fact is that uh, it's a solid light euro. There's no denier. This is the A material, folks. I'm not, I'm not going to feed the troll. You're looking for a reaction. I'm Try not the gonna, prime rib. I'm not going to give it to you. Tip your server. I'll be here the whole episode. Unfortunately. And those are the games we played this week. All 500 of them. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. I'm going to go first because my favorite part of life is denying mark any joy so cge is a company mark do you know what their first game ever published was their first game ever published was it through the ages no we're about to talk about it galaxy trucker was their first game so they're putting out a new version of galaxy trucker which they say is going to play mostly the same slight differences instead of usually what you play three different uh, missions. This one is going to be one, but there's sort of like a campaign mode you can do where you do more. So I have a feeling that this one mission that you go on is going to be a bit longer, though. I, I probably than 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 standard ones you play now. I really like the evolving shipboards and how every mission escalates. I really like that sense of of increasing stakes and of grappling with different spatial challenges. So for that reason alone, I think, I'm not particularly jazzed about this new edition. I'm jazzed that it'll be a little bit shorter. I think the the original Galaxy Charter goes on for quite a while. Really? Yeah. It's about 90 minutes, but I can't begrudge it when it's that much fun. True. But we'll see. I want to see what, what they've done, like with the cards. It's times like this when I know I'm truly alone in the world because if I had any solid support or backup, people would have already pointed this out to me prior. A couple of years ago, there was a dexterity game released called Hurly Burly, which has been described as being somewhat similar to Rhino Hero, but with catapults. I am down for this. 
friends and neighbors of the podcast. I am so enthusiastic for Hurly Burly. The theme is also vaguely uh, a satire of academia as well, because it's a whole bunch of Armenian scientists at the turn of the 20th century who are competing for who can publish their results first. I'm all over that as well. Hurly Burly was published, as I say, a couple years ago. It's going to be reprinted and getting wider distribution. It's been picked up by publisher CMYK, and they plan on putting it on Kickstarter. It's designed by Ricky Tata and Verbina Tata. So look through the rules, Mark, and I have a feeling that it's going to fall into the dexterity pit of, of not being able to end game well. I know, but I'm still happy in the pit. I mean, I don't, I don't approve of all the games in the pit, but I'm happy to be there. Because to win the game... You have to start your turn with a level five tower, and I don't think that's ever going to happen. But <laughs> we'll see. Well, we'll see when the hurly burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. So I keep thinking that I have to put sort of like our policies on a page because people were asking about Seven Wonders Mystery that's about to come out, and I keep having to say that we only talk about things that are interesting. On the topic of things that are interesting, there's a company that I just heard of called TT Combat. Mark, I know... They've been I, around for a while. I know I need ostrich riders in my life. <laughs> Do you need ostrich riders in your life? I have enough minis. Thank you very much. So this, you should check TT Combat out. They have these fantastic terrain. They have these outlandish figures. And coming out this week are ostrich riders. And they look fantastic. Yeah, TT Combat is one of the... It's a pretty long-standing independent miniatures company. On the topic of non-independent miniatures companies, Games Workshop, the least independent miniatures company known to humankind. So they put out a game called Warhammer Quest Cursed City, and they had published officially that they were going to support this game. They had a three-year plan for supplements and expansions, very much the same kind of model that they had for previous specialist games. For example, Blackstone Fortress which has been very well supported with lots of supplements and expansions. But uh, for a variety of reasons, and we could speculate as to why, uh, Roby Jenkins, who is a commenter on the miniatures industry that I very much uh, trust, speculates that it has to do with production costs related to global pandemic uh, circumstances in manufacturing in China. But the reasons are irrelevant. I'm not going to say that... Games Workshop lied and is now trying to gaslight us, but uh, but uh, Games Workshop lied and they're now trying to gaslight us. They immediately after publishing Warhammer Quest Curse City, they sold out of their first print run and they pulled it from their website and they also scrubbed from all their official announcements any indication that they had been intending to support it ever. So they retracted all their print now. And rather than saying, well, we originally planned on supporting it and now we're not going to, which would be fine. Games Workshop has been doing this for years and it's never ideal, but a lot of their specialist products don't get support. And that's okay. Just these one-offs for fans or enthusiasts who want to get the game. And usually a lot of the time people are just buying it for the figures anyway. There's that as well. Uh, But this time they aren't even willing to acknowledge that they ever had contrary plans for any reason. Games Workshop is at war with East Asia. Games Workshop has always been at war with East Asia. It never existed. Yes. So if you're at all interested in Warhammer Quest Cursed City and you find a copy available, well, it's not going to be reprinted. Well, unless, of course, they decide to change their minds again. But <laughs> they've cur- their current version of the truth is that they have no intention to reprint. And they never did have any intention to reprint. I wonder, maybe they didn't get enough pre-orders or who knows? Let's not speculate. Speaking of things that will get reprinted, Tyrants of the Underdark. Now it's going to be called Tyrants of the Underdark, the board game. 
<laughs> so it'll be another addition. You won't have the, the funky plastic stands anymore. It'll all be cardboard, but still it'll include the expansion already in the box. And this is a game yet I've yet to even try. So I'm excited. I'm glad I'll be able to pick it up in a, in a revised edition. Looking forward to trying Tyrants of the Underdark. Hidden Leaders, Mark. We talked about this on Pledge, uh, of, Indifference. Pledge of Indifference. Check out the art of this on Kickstarter. It's called Hidden Leaders. And Hellboy. Mark, I thought you thought I'd talk about Hellboy. Hellboy is coming back to Kickstarter with another expansion and a dice game on the side. So if you enjoyed Hellboy, check it out. It'll be up soon. Maybe something that you want. On the topic of Hellboy, the designers of Hellboy, Needy Cat Games, namely the nom de plume of the collaboration of Sophie Williams and James Hewitt, will be designing another fantasy sports game. Now, currently, we are very satisfied with all our sport needs in the form of Trickshot, but they are designing a game that's kind of sort of in the same mold as Blood Bowl or Blitz Bowl, which is to say fantasy football, ball in the sense of orcs tackling halflings. You mean another fantasy football game other than Blood Bowl? Yes. That's never been done. Never. It is going to be called Myth and Goal. Yikes. <laughs> I don't know. I really like... James Hewitt and Sophie Williams. I like their design aesthetic. I like what they do. So I'm vaguely curious. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our topic. Mark's already talked about uh, Princess of Florence. That was by Wolfgang Kramer. And his first game was Tempo. And he also has put out El Grande and Coliseum and Torres. And Tempo was sort of like the no. groundwork for Downforce. It's very no. similar. What do you mean, no? No. You said... You want to do Tempo today. No, no. Tempo is, uh, well, it's actually Tiempo, which is Spanish for time. I don't know why you put it that way. We're going to be talking about the metaphysical approaches to time. I have an entire thing here about the transcendental deduction and its application to the a priori intuition of, of time and how it relates to space. But I have a whole thing on Wolfgang Kramer and how his work has influenced the design work of seven different designers and how he advanced gaming as we know it. Well, sure, but do you have here about how Plato said that time was a, a moving tapestry? Uh, no, I don't. This is a problem. Uh oh. Well, let's go with yours. I'll just try to wing it as you sort of move along. <laughs> <laughs> so we often talk about the a game's tempo, and I actually really like it when a game plays with your expectations of how much time you have to do something and the various ways you can approach it. Now we can, this is not to say that I, I dislike games that don't do that. So just a couple of games that we talked about uh, today. Merv, every player in Merv has 12 actions. That's the sum and substance of it. And the only real notion of tempo that you have is maybe there's a card in a display that you want to get to before somebody else does. But that's not really a tempo consideration. That's just really a speed consideration. Get to that thing as fast as you possibly can because it might be gone. I mean, similarly, The Magnificent, everyone has a fixed number of actions. And those games are fine. And I have no objection to those. But sometimes what I really like and elements that I really like at a board game is where I have a variety of different timing considerations. And some of them are at odds with each other. And or I need to be conscious of how fast other players are going. And again, just to circle back to games we've talked about just this week, Llama Dice, that's one of those realizations that I had when playing Llama Dice because I had a certain vision of how long a round was going to last. But I started to realize a couple turns into the game that other people could start messing with that. And if they rushed the game and pushed really hard and didn't do as well as they necessarily could, but decided to end things prematurely just to hobble me, those kinds of dynamics and that kind of interplay, I often find 
truly fascinating. Yeah, and, and, and designers have found really interesting ways to do this. There's like the whole red October thing where, you know, time increments so you can do a bunch of small things and they can't do anything. Or the original Kalis where if you passed, everyone's actions would start to cost more money. And there's all sorts of games that do this kind of thing where there's, you know, a little side thing where it's like, oh, there's these couple of tiles over here. You know, you can buy them if you want, but everything is fine. But if they ever disappear, then the round's over. So there's like different ways to push the end of the game or push that round. I really love that sort of dynamic, that sort of, like we said, sort of that pace of the game. Kalis is a really good example, I think, because worker placement games can do this hardly at all or really, really, really well. I think Kalis does it pretty well. So hardly at all could be an example of a game like where, again, one of those one of those lazy worker placement games that I complain about all the time where there's hardly ever any competition for worker spots. And you, you don't care what other people are doing. Even really good worker placement games where sometimes you're bumping up against each other, like, for example, Anachrony. Anachrony doesn't really have any tempo considerations, despite the fact that it's about time travel. <laughs> you know, you try to go to the spot before somebody else gets there, but the round is going to last as long as the round's going to last, and it's going to go until everyone passes anyway. And Kalis, as people pass, things get more expensive, and that's an interesting trade-off. That was true in 1303 as well as the original Kalis. But the game we reviewed last week... Dominant Species Marine. That was the element that I liked the most. The tempo considerations in Dominant Species Marine were always pulling me in a million different directions because you were never allowed to place a worker earlier in the action queue. And so you start eyeing those later actions of the action queue really, really jealously and figure, well, should I just go rush for it? Oh, but I really want to set it up with these first three turns. But if I do that, then my opponents have all this time to react. But if I rush to the end, then I'm going to have to pass and take all my workers back and cost me time there. How it played with time was by far my favorite element. Uh, Igitsia did something vaguely similar, but I think in a less interesting way. Igitsia had the same idea of you're not allowed to place any workers earlier on in the stream. But the round lasted as long as the round was going to last. There was no idea of the push and pull of paying in the same way with the same kind of opportunity cost of rushing to the end of the track the dominant species marine did and those are just some examples of just in the in the vein of worker placement of how you can start playing with tempo considerations so other things are like built-in timers like we actually have time like uh, project elite or bullet where it uh, you're forced to do all of your actions in a certain amount of time and sometimes they do this because it leads into the like the theme or the feel of the game or the anxiety or the pressure that you need to be on under the whole time yeah we talked we we've talked about real time games in their own unique topic and we tend to like real time games a fair bit space alert i think takes it to the next level because it also has this this vague idea of tempo on top of the real time because someone might think well i could rush to this station and just plot out all my actions to do that. But what if a threat comes up later and I regret having committed to doing this thing? Or maybe I don't want to commit to going there too soon because it's suboptimal to pre-commit myself to go. Yeah. So real-time games can really play with your sense of time even on top of the fact that they're, they're real-time experiences. So things that affect uh, tempo are like downtime. And one thing that designers sometimes do to stop this is let people do all their actions at the same time. But this is sort of a a double-edged sword. Not only does it save time and and sort of keep the tempo going, but it will remove any sort of interaction that there is during that part of the game. Yeah, and that's less interesting tempo for me. Again, I really like it when I start looking over at my neighbors and wondering who's going to pull the trigger and end the round. Do I have enough time to do all this stuff? And or 
can I force them to play suboptimally by finishing early? Because generally speaking, I've commented on this before, I'm very conservative, and I tend to peak early. So in games where you can manipulate the game length, I am often the one to end it and do a whole bunch of suboptimal, really, really low-stakes moves in an effort to force the end game before anyone else can really pump their engine to the degree they would otherwise like to. And the other thing that can affect the tempo is different gaming groups. Um, because sometimes, you know, people take longer to take their actions or, or, you know, it, it just feels differently with different groups of people. You know, you might let them, you know, AP it out when other groups don't. Some people are ready with their turns right away. So some games that move quickly in some groups don't move so quickly in others. Well, it's even more than that, I think. Some gamers, especially if they're accustomed to a certain table meta or group meta, can react really badly to a game not lasting as long as they thought that it was going to be. I tend to find two different reactions, actually. That There's a certain type of jaded Eurogamer, and I, I very much self-identify as being in that group, where you play a game like Senji or Tribune, and the game is over two or three rounds before you thought it was going to be. And sometimes that reaction is, oh, wow, that really got a lot done in a very compact structure and the tempo was really high and it maintained it and neither of those are engine builders but especially in engine builders i sometimes find the opposite reaction where the game ends and someone's like oh i wanted to pump that thing 17 more times i was going to get my three ore and turn that into six points five more times and they feel really hurt actually and resentful if, if the game ends sooner than they thought it was going to be so on that on that topic of of building an engine and the, and the build up, so some games give you that feeling of just plodding along, where you do the same thing every turn, like Castles of Burgundy. You don't do anything different every turn, or or games that aren't uh, graduated properly, like stuff like Arkham Horror, where you've got this super advanced character and you flip a tile that's you know one hit point. So you've spent your turn you know, killing this weak thing, not very enjoyable where other games mm. do a great job of graduating the monsters, making them more difficult as the game goes along. And there's this buildup, this momentum, this sense of tempo. Absolutely. And uh, one of the one of the games where actually I think it does a good job of maintaining that sense of tempo, and it's one of the rare games that I get tripped up and the game and the, the round ends sooner than I wanted it to is actually Blood Rage. Because while I don't find myself drowning in the need to pump an engine 17 times over i do often find myself in playing a game of blood rage looking at my cards and thinking oh look at these five toys i want to play all of them and by the time i've set out my third toy someone else has raised the fifth province and i realize oh this is going to end <laughs> and all this is going to be useless part of that is also the graduated decks because as you get the better toys I, I i get more and more distracted by wanting to get all my ducks in a row before i start doing anything meanwhile my neighbors who are not similarly burdened are like yeah let's get to the pillaging right now and manipulating that level of tempo is also one of those things that the game reveals itself over time i like i was completely ignorant of the tempo considerations the first couple times i played blood rage it was really after i had a little bit more experience with it where i start realizing wait a minute i'm being pulled in lots of different timing directions yeah, that's a that's a great interact with, you know, wanting, say you look at your hand of cards, and it's like, oh, this is going to be a great round. I'm going to play all these cards out. And then it's like, oh, it's, it's, it's over. <laughs> Damn. Or I'm really going to win this fight because I'm going to play out these three combat bonuses before the fight starts. And suddenly somebody who doesn't care about getting all their ducks in a row starts the fight before you've set everything up. And you're like, oh, great. That's one of the ways in which Cosmic Frog maintains its high level of tension all the time. Because if you're low on energy, you are super vulnerable. 
But in order to score, in order to get anywhere, you have to spend lots of energy. And that element of tempo, when you need to spend the turn to get your oomph back, because that's what energy is called in Cosmic <laughs> Frog, that element of tempo is also really, really important. Looking around, seeing who's vulnerable, accepting that sometimes you're just going to have to take the turn to step back, and when you need to press and when you need to spend that energy. So I'm just going to jump, flip-flop very quickly, just back to the to the pumping the engine, you know, 50 times. The fact that some games do this terribly where they let you build up an engine that's too big and suddenly your your turn is taking like 10 minutes longer than everyone else. And then back to Cosmic Frog where or or a Hansa Teutonica where you get two actions. Boom, two actions done. Next player, two actions done. Keeps this, you know, quick momentum. So even if you are wasting an action to regain your own for whatever, it doesn't really matter because it's going to be your turn in a few seconds. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of those, again, one of those areas where the game's sense of tempo interacts with the player's sense of tempo just in terms of keeping that forward momentum going in a game. And where good design really gives you the sense of being able to do lots of interesting stuff, but not necessarily in the sense of, well, I tap this to give me an en- uh, an iron, I turn the iron into a gold, I turn the gold into a cloth, I turn the cloth into five ducks, and then I move the duck over, etc. You get the yeah. idea. Well, the same sort of thing is the old games where it's like, oh, it's the beginning of your turn, well, draw your card and read it while everyone's waiting. Whereas <laughs> the new designers are you draw your card at the end of your turn, so you, you, know, you can plan your turn out, and then when it gets back to you, boom, you're ready to go. Well, it's weird. This is an element of psychology and, and, and what kind of tempo you want out of a game. I remember reading a fascinating article by Bruno Faiduti, who's an Italian designer who's very, very good at, at talking about his design process. And he said that there were two fundamental m- models of when to draw cards. There was the at the beginning of your turn model and at the end of your turn model. And he said the sort of end of your turn model is allows you to plan for your next turn. And he attributed this as obviously he didn't invent it or he's not the only one who does it, but he attributed this to more like Reiner Knizia. You draw the card and so you can plan. He, on the other hand, said that it's better to draw a card at the top of your turn because then between turns you get to hope at what you'll get. Hope versus planning. And it was one of those articles where it's like, you are articulating your own position. And in articulating and defending your own position, you are making me disagree with you more. <laughs> but then again, I prefer Reiner Kinsey designs to Bruno Fiduti designs anyway, so big surprise. All right, what I got left is some versus thing, like stuff you do while it's not your turn versus the actions are so short that it's your turn before you know it. So like we're talking about games that are very, you know, sort of complex and and heavy so like while it's not your turn you could be like brushing up on you know parts of the rules that you're not too sure about (laughs) or you know reading over you know your seven cards that you know are five or six chapters long so it's not so bad when the you know it's a a long going game because there's stuff you can do while it's not your turn versus games like beyond the sun where you know you do get to do one action and by the time it's you know you're thinking about what your next turn is it is your next turn yeah, and again, I really think that quick turns can help with this. I, I think particularly when I think of games that have excellent tempo, both in the sense of moving around the table and in the sense of trying to manipulate how long the game is going to last, I think of a couple of Matt Gertz games, specifically Imperial and Antica, because both of these games uh, pull you in different directions. In Antica, you want to be efficient, and efficiency means... One of two different things. One version of efficiency is you hit all the spots in the rondel in order, which means that you never waste resources and you get as many resources as you possibly can, but that is very inefficient in terms of time because time says you need to skip spaces and get to where you need fast. Because on top of all these, just the rondel considerations, you have all these people breathing down your neck on your borders and you have to worry about that as well. Imperial, similarly... Well, if you had a whole bunch of turns to set everything up, you could tax and get millions and millions and millions of dollars. 
But you don't have the luxury of time. You can't set everything up perfectly, so you have to trade board position for time considerations. And both of those games, on top of having those great time considerations, the turns are so quick that it breezes around the table so fast that everyone's engaged all the time. And then I have race games versus abstract strategy games, where race games, you want you know the turns to be super fast, super quick, give you that sense of you know racing, where I feel as though in abstract strategy games, you know, there's sort of, you know, it's, it's a given that, you know, turns are going to be longer. You give the other person time to think, you know, like sort of like chess or these go or, you know, these other sure. sort of abstract games where, you know, it's a heavy thinky game and, the, and it's accepted that, you know, the person can sit there and think about it for a while. Yeah, I hear you. And, and I hear lots of people talking about abstract games and how they really emphasize a certain notion of dynamism or forward momentum and tempo and and it's one of those times where again it's like yeah this is why i can't really get into that world i've never really seen i enjoy some of the gift project games there are some abstract games that i've quite enjoyed but it's definitely not my mainstay and i've never really gotten into that super deep and then i have super tight games versus games with hidden victory points or many paths to victory so can you imagine a Tigers and Euphrates game where your victory points are open to everyone? Oh, yeah. Right? So you can see where that sort of AP would destroy the entire tempo of that game. Yep. Whereas because the victory and no, points And are, no one would be willing to cause the game to end except the one who was winning, which would, right. which would not even, independent of AP, even if everyone's playing really fast, the entire tempo of the game would be shattered. Exactly. So games, games like that. So we're in many some, pa- people, some people play that way, Walker. Some people play with open scoring. That's a lie. No, it's true. That's a filthy, filthy lie. No, people do it. Some people hate hidden, inform- hidden trackable information so much that they are willing to ruin the greatest game ever made. That's awful. I know. Dying a fire. I Don't- do not endorse <laughs> that statement by Michael Walker. I've never met him. So we have. A, I have the only thing I have left are a bunch of bad games and good games. Go for Should it. We just go over them. I have Galaxy Trucker for just sort of like the pace of the game, the momentum. So you got this. You know, furious, you know, sort of grabbing tiles and and building your ship. And then it sort of just sort of bogs down into this. Okay, now we're going to draw cards and damage comes in. And I love those two paces, though. I I know. I'm not saying it. I'm just saying it. I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a huge change up in tempo. It is, but I really appreciate it. Compare that to, say, Space Alert, because the biggest problem with Space Alert that I have is you have this frenetic planning and then the rest of it is just resolution. Galaxy Trucker has the resolution, but there are little choices sprinkled throughout, so you're still more engaged. I love Space Alert, not knocking Space Alert, but that that it, maybe it's jarring, but I wouldn't say bogs down. It just allows you a chance to breathe between frenetic building sessions. Then I have Game of Thrones here. That, this would be a, like a more first edition type thing. We just talked about this last week. The fact that some games will give you no more troops or you know, yep. you're changing up. The the tempo the, is entirely determined by a random output of cards, just like a ten, where the tempo of the game is d- determined entirely by random throws th- throws of the dice. And then after the empire, which we already talked about, I don't want to beat that horse any further. It's just this very fairly quick worker placement, and then it's you know suddenly stops while everyone you know works their way through this long attack phase. Relatively deterministic, and, choice light, yeah. and Xeno Shift goes falls into that same thing. We both love Xeno Shift, but only with like two to three players because if you got any more than that you got this very interesting sort of deck building element and setting up your troops and then the actual you know you have to sort there is there's a little bit but not enough i agree not enough you know you sit there while everyone works through you know their their attack line 
It's so, true. So good ones. I have Beyond the Sun. I've already talked about one action, huge decision space. I have Scythe here only because it it says right in the rule book you do your main action and then your secondary action is supposed to be done after the fact. You know, you tell the next person to start and you just sort and, of... And both of those games have what I've been emphasizing. You can rush the end game or go at a more stately pace. Like the, we, the two of us, going back to Scythe, we play Scythe entirely differently. I always, when playing Scythe, rush to put out my stars as quickly as possible. You, on the other hand, you have one or two stars at the end of the game and 73,000 points because you're just going and doing your own stately thing, whereas every time I'm like, I can finish this soon enough, so he's not going to be able to do it. Sometimes I get close, but I never quite do it. I don't think it's that good. But anyway. <laughs> and then I was thinking about this other this other thing with uh, momentum and and sort of pacing. And sort of keeping all the players in the game. And it's, I have it, uh, Risk versus Kemet for like combat. So when, when Risk combat is happening, the other players are sort of hoping that that other player gets his, their armies whittled down. So they're sort of in the game. You know what I mean? They're sort of watching, so they're, they're sort of invested in what's They're observers. Happening. They care about the outcome, but exactly. they're observers. Whereas in a game like Kemet, uh, the other side's usually just going to pull their troops back. You know, they're, they're, the other players are fairly out of it. They're, you know, they've, sure. they've usually, you know, used up their, their movement or, you know, it's not something they can control. They have no input whatsoever. But a pitched battle fact, takes a tenth the time. Uh, it's true. But I'm just saying just that sort of feeling of everyone being involved all the time. It's just sort of now these two are having a fight. That has really nothing to do with me. Hmm. It's just something I was thinking about. I, I see where you're going with it. And then lastly, I I looked at Hiroshima Hex and I just think that this game does so much good for tempo that I think it's it's very unique. Yeah, you're drawing three tiles, picking two, you're putting them out. And then even when it gets down to combat resolution, it's all done at the same time in initiative where all the fours go, all three goes to zero, done, on to the next round. So everything is to facilitate the game moving forward and keeping the tempo going. And the rate of the battles is indirectly determined by the choices that players make about how to manage the battle tiles. Exactly. I, I just thought it, it hits it on so many different points that it should be mentioned uh, i'd actually like to close out with mentioning a game that i think manages tempo the best I, I so we talked about llama dice i really think that reiner knizia is a master at managing tempo in a lot of ways i think that two of his designs that are my some of my perennial favorites do it in very very good ways i've talked about how raw does it a lot about how finessing when you want to go out when you want to uh, finish using all your sons, knowing when the round is going to end or knowing when you have the time to wait for a better deal or snap a suboptimal deal. I love those kinds of tensions. It's absolutely marvelous. I've talked about that a lot. Blue Moon, I really think, does an excellent, excellent job of managing tempo in several different ways. One of them is pushing to six cards. If you win a fight in Blue Moon, you get a dragon. But if there are six cards out when you win a fight, you get two dragons. And that's huge. So it's fundamentally an auction game where the value of the pot changes based on how many cards have actually been put out. And knowing when someone can make a push to six, knowing that, well, this is the last time I have a, I have a chance to make a counter thrust before seeing if they're going to up the stakes to six, because I think I'm going to lose, but I'm not sure. Similarly, knowing when you can make the push to six and hoping that you can do it before the opponent knows what you're doing and or possibly pushing to six when you don't know you can win. All of those have influence on the length of the game. All of those have influence on the length of, the, uh, of a given hand. And then on top of that, you're managing the contents of your deck and you know that your powerful cards 
cards are probably only going to come up once, unless you're the Aqua, in which case you get to play them twice because the Aqua are great. And <laughs> knowing that sometimes winning the game is just a question of outlasting your opponent and being the one with the thicker deck, sometimes it's not. And the, the tension of managing that. And for a very simple game that doesn't look like it has much to do with tempo, Blue Moon plays with tempo in a lot of really excellent ways, pulling you in different directions. And I just wanted to give a, a, a shout out to how it managed that. So those are our thoughts. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. Uh, on the guild, by the way, you'll find an excellent discussion about what a round is and what a turn is and how we all need to get on the same page. Could not agree more. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.